Hello and welcome to The Recapables. This is a podcast about television and on this episode we are going to be talking about the season finale of Succession. This could be the defining moment of your life. And it eat everything. A rich kid kills a boy. You'd never be anything else. Oh, you know, it could be what it should be. Nothing at all. A sad little detail at a lovely wedding where father and son are reconciled. Today I'm joined by Ringer staff writer Justin Charity. Justin, what's up? Oh, oh I'm gutted. Wow. <laughs> Today you will be the cousin Greg to my Tom Wamsgans. Uh, my purity gone. We're, ta- <laughs> we're talking about Nobody Is Ever Missing, which as I said is the season finale of this show that frankly crept up on us and became the best damn show on TV pretty quick. Earlier this week on The Watch, it was uh, awarded The Belt as the best show on TV. And it's pretty much all I talk about with all of our colleagues. Before we get into it, Justin, I'm just going to talk through pretty quickly what happens in this stirring, complicated, funny, weird, emotional season finale. So here we go. Kendall Roy, nervous and unsure of his choice to essentially pursue his father's business full stop, arrives on the morning of his sister's wedding to hand deliver the notice of a bear hug, essentially hostily taking over operating control of Waystar Royco from his father, Logan. Suffice to say, Logan does not appreciate this one bit. Cut to Roman. Roman watches the launch of the Japanese rocket program he has been selected to oversee in the bathroom on his cell phone. Needless to say, it does not go well. In fact, it explodes. Connor announces to his former prostitute girlfriend, Willa, that he has found a job he wants to pursue, and that job is president of the United States of America. Willa's response is clear and straightforward. That sounds like a fun project. Logan later flips out at a waiter who accidentally spills champagne on him and has the waiter dismissed. This is Chekhov's waiter, and we'll get back to him. At the wedding reception, there are toasts from Logan and Roman and Caroline and Shiv and Tom. Later, Shiv and Nate discuss the deal with Senator Gus and Logan, and Shiv shows her real side, and she says, if you can't handle it, then fuck off. I'm Shiv fucking Roy, and I'm going to have two grateful people, the next president and my father. Connor grabs Kendall during the reception to confront and scold him about the bear hug and what it means for the future wealth and status of the family. Wake up. This is a little maneuver, Kendall tells them. Later, Logan enters the room. He confronts Kendall along with his siblings and says, I blame myself. I spoiled you and now you're fucked. And I'm sorry. I'm sorry you're a hothouse flower, that you're nothing, you're curdled cream. Maybe you should write a book or collect sports cars, but the world, you're not made for it. Kendall, defeated, sad, lonely, unsure of his future, can only say to his dad, you're a fucking beast. Later at the reception, Roman is relieved to learn that only a few fingers were lost in that fateful Japanese rocket explosion of his. Greg encounters Kendall and encourages him to clean up the business and insinuates the cruise line scandal that he's been made aware of by Tom. Kendall is seeking drugs but acknowledges Greg's hustle. Greg the motherfucking egg, you little Machiavellian fuck, he says, I see you. I like it. Kendall then goes off in pursuit of more drugs. Tom and Shiv have a very important moment during their reception in which they retreat to their quarters. Shiv admits the Nate affair and that she may be incompatible with traditional marriage. The box set death march, she calls it. Love is the last fridge magnet left, she also says. Then they embrace and realize that they love each other or do they will never know. 
Later on at the reception, Tom then confronts Nate and dunks on him, ejecting him from the party and perhaps Shiv's life, though we don't know. He makes a joke about the wine, and he says, put my fucking wine back now. This is all set to the dulcet tones of Billy Joel's Uptown Girl. Probably not a coincidental choice. Kendall later finds the fired waiter and seeks drugs from him. They get high in his car and head on a quest. When a deer crosses their path, Kendall, driving for his new high friend, veers off the road, off a bridge, into a river where the waiter drowns. Kendall emerges from the river wet and alone, walking all the way back, shades of Chappaquiddick. Kendall walks all the way back, sneaks into the back room of the house, cleans up, and goes back out to the party. He sees his mother, apologizes to Connor, fails to connect with Roman, sees his children, with whom he has a dance party. Black Eyed Peas and Whitney Houston's I Want to Dance with Somebody glare in the background. The next morning, he's told by Greg about the dead server, and then confronted by Logan, who shares with his son that his hotel key card was found near the boy when the body was fished out of the drink and that he was spotted dripping wet re-entering the house. The confrontation between Kendall and Logan is intense. Logan is in control, and Kendall is spinning out. Tell Sandy you're out, Logan says. Tell Stewie it looks like a shit show. Go to the desert. Dry yourself. This could be the defining moment of your life. It eat everything. A rich kid kills a boy. Instead, it can be something different. A father and son are reconciled. Logan opens his arms for a hug. Kendall embraces him. You're my boy. You're my number one boy. Kendall says, I'm sorry. Logan says, no, no, no. Cut to black. We are at the end. Justin, were you moved by this season finale of Succession? Do you mean, was I moved since, by the most morose wedding since Melancholia? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I was moved. In, in the spirit of Melancholia, did this feel like the end of the world? A little bit. A little bit. I mean, I was also, I was surprised in the second half of the episode, the direction. I, I think Specifically of the Kendall arc, I was just sort of destabilized by a lot of the developments. <laughs> Once you get to Chappaquiddick, like you mentioned. Um, well, I want to talk first about the bear hug. You know, we were just chatting earlier and you mentioned that you have at least observed bear hugs last week on the show. Uh, Katie Baker, who also has some experience in this world, talked a bit about what they are. Maybe you could give us a sense of if this played out exactly the way you expected it to. I mean, a lot of the stuff seems I've, I've I don't think I've worked on a hostile bid before in in financial communications, but uh, I don't think the <laughs> um, you know the delivering the letter of intent at a wedding that you and your father are attending like a lot of that stuff is obviously super dramatized and seems pretty ridiculous, but. Uh, yeah, the tension, I don't know, a lot of the tension felt really real. Like, I think specifically the scene where they're together in the room, they're in some room at the estate, and they're printing up the letter, and they accidentally sent, they send the letter to the wrong printer, <laughs> and they <laughs> yeah. don't know where in the house the letter printed to. Like, that's definitely a thing where I've been like, yeah, that's a mistake I've made working for a corporate client before. <laughs> Communications in a, in a totally urgent and sensitive situation. How many printers do you think they have in that castle? Yeah, that, that's a good question, because on the one hand, it seems like a super old-school setup, but on the other hand, all these people work in uh, media, they're all like C-suite executives. So I would have to guess, I'd say 10 spread throughout. Where'd you see Kendall's arc going? Did you sense that it would be this Shakespearean tragedy throughout this episode? Or did you think he was going to be somehow a little bit more triumphant as we neared the end of the season? Well, I thought, I assumed that he would fail. Mm -hmm. And I assumed that, I assumed that his vices would undermine him. But I, I didn't really foresee... Logan 
sort of regaining the upper hand so decisively. Like, I thought, if anything, everyone would sort of walk away in the finale unclean and sort of wrecked. Whereas Logan actually comes out pretty, you know, Logan comes out like a clear victor. He does, and he gets the two big moments. You know, he gets that speech that I somewhat recited when he when the family confronts Kendall about the takeover, and then he gets this final embrace that is this, and maybe we should wait to talk about it, but it's just one of the more fascinating moments in, in, the, in the whole show. Um, did you think everybody else came out unclean? Because I was kind of surprised by how not dirtied Roman and Shiv were at the end of the show. You thought Shiv didn't come out? I thought Shiv came out pretty... I actually think Shiv, for the past few episodes, has... I think she ends the season in a way darker and more complicated place than I ever saw her character going. Roman just gets away with a lot. He does. You know, it's just that... It's like the nature of his character is such that, short of dying, I don't really know what bad can befall Roman that he can really own as a character. Like, I mean, he literally blows up a rocket (laughs) 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 blows up a rocket and i think one of the best scenes in the episode is the aftermath of him he's watching a shuttle launch in a restroom on his phone the shuttle blows up and one he just closes his phone and just puts the phone in his pocket and it's like oh awkward but then later when jerry confronts him and he's like yeah the shuttle launch but badly like didn't you hear about it like we don't know if there are casualties and and roman's just like Everyone's been texted. It's been established that he's gotten dozens and thousands of texts and calls. And then he's just like, oh, I didn't hear about this. No one told me what happened. You know what I mean? He just sort of lets everything roll off of him. The look on his face in the mirror after he's watched yeah. the explosion <laughs> is is priceless. It's very special. He's a, this is the, a, it's a great cap on an amazing performance this season. Yes. So what about, what about Shiv? Shiv and Tom, you know, they come to this, they have this incredibly emotional, interesting conversation about essentially what is the nature of partnership when you're a bad person. And I found that their detente was interesting. I don't think that they necessarily resolved anything, but their decision to just fuck, to clarify that they love each other, even if it's not going to work out, was notable to me. And obviously Tom emerged from that embrace emboldened and willing to eject Nate. Right. I, I love the scene where he ejects Nate because even that scene where Tom is finally asserting himself in this decisive way over Nate, it doesn't really feel like it's resolving Tom and Shiv to me so much as it feels like it's resolving um, Tom and Greg, actually, because because Greg is sort of just out of view when Tom ejects Nate from the wedding. And Greg is the one who, at one point in the episode, approaches Tom and is like, look, I think Shiv's cheating on you. And... Tom just sort of is like, don't talk to me about this. Like, are you crazy? Like, I don't want to hear this. It's not true. Whatever, whatever. And then when Tom ejects Nate from the wedding, he looks at Greg with this sense of like, you know what, man? I handled it. And that to me is a way more decisive moment. It's just a way more decisive beat with those two characters that we've come to know and love as a pair, Tom and Greg, than anything about the Tom-Shiv relationship, which I think is by design this very like ambiguous hyper modern <laughs> thing you were very early on the cousin greg wave how do you feel like greg comes out of this season I, I i think he had two good moments the one you just identified where he wordlessly communicates with tom and their their partnership in fuckery is is clarified but he also has this great encounter with kendall 
Right. So it's it's basically when Kendall is really just he's fallen off the wagon decisively in the in the finale and he's looking for more drugs and uh you know in the previous episode when he's looking for drugs he just goes to Greg and he's like find me drugs. Whereas in this episode he sort of encounters Greg in the same way but Greg pulls the card of like look a lot of shit's going down you're trying to take over the company just so you know like I've been through all this shit and I've inadvertently learned all these secrets. Whatever the fate of the company is, I think somebody should pay me money to keep me on the good side. <laughs> and and that just totally curves Kendall. Like the impressive thing isn't just that in that moment, Greg learns to be canny and learns to sort of play the game, but it's that he finally curves someone. <laughs> yeah, he does. Uh, and it's great because it doesn't, I, I was afraid actually with cousin Greg that, the season or maybe the show itself in later seasons would sort of hurtle toward taking Greg, this pure character, and being like, this is how he becomes rotten to the core. But I like that the season instead is a soft landing for Greg, and he doesn't become rotten, and he doesn't do some terrible thing. He just learns to stand up for himself in, you know, what is a pretty respectable way, given, like, all of the risk that he's taken on himself and all the shit he's eaten for all these characters. That's true, but it does feel notable to me that he is the essentially the activating agent for Kendall's true downfall. He's the person who's like, yeah, I think I saw the waiter around the corner. He probably has something. You right. Know? And then from right. there on out, we get, let's maybe let's unpack um, Kendall's folly a little here. Uh, what did you think about the decision to have that come up and say so you talked about that you thought maybe his his bad habits would would get the best of him? Yeah, it's there are a lot of there are a lot of points in the series where Kendall's come Kendall comes back into contact with drug culture. I think it's fitting that in the in the finale app, it's through one of the um wait staff at the wedding. It's through a service worker. Um this family has a very bad history with service workers in the context of this series. Um but in this case the the waiter that he runs into in the in the you know, one of the parking lots outside of this castle is doing a bunch of ketamine. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Kendall does not want to do ketamine. Uh, Kendall wants to do cocaine. The waiter doesn't have cocaine. So they go on a quest for cocaine in the middle of the night, which looks like, you know, by that point, it's like past midnight. It's dark. They're in the middle of nowhere and they're looking for drugs. They're on the road. There are deer out and you know, the classic deer in the headlights, car swerves into the lake or into the, it looks like a creek actually. Yes. Car goes crashing. They end up underwater. Only one of them comes out. Only one of them resurfaces. It's Kendall who does try to, he, he tries to dive back under to save the waiter who, who is driving or no, he, no, Kendall's driving. He tries to save the waiter in the passenger seat, but he just can't see. He's clearly exhausted. And yeah. I mean, that's sort of the moment, like the quest for drugs is what ultimately derails both, I mean, the life of the waiter derails, um, it derails Kendall's great ambitions of taking over the company, but it also just derails his life yet again. I think insinuating that he is a Ted Kennedy-esque figure too is definitely not a mistake. And it's kind of a fascinating positioning of him too, don't you think? Yeah, I'm try- I actually am curious about why... You know, I think early in the season, it's easy to look at the show and be like, oh, this is invoking, you know, Disney. It's invoking the Murdochs, et cetera, et cetera. I think it's interesting more so because it's such a late stage thing. 
Like that that thesis or that idea about Kendall and Logan as like the Kennedy. It's it's both it totally fits with the I think mashup of like American dynastic wealth as like a theme of the show. Um, but it's just surprising because it's so late, and I honestly had not thought about the Kennedy family until the midpoint of the season finale. I think it does this beautiful job of not saying this is a show, and we've written about that. You've written about this, and Katie has written about this, and we've talked a lot about it. It's not that the show is the Murdochs or is this family or is that family. It's clear that Jesse Armstrong, who created the show and wrote this episode, is just kind of fascinated by that dynastic power that you're describing and the connections that families have and the way that they eat each other and the way that they manipulate each other. And the Kennedys are just kind of one more example that hadn't really crossed my mind until I watched this episode. And I was like, sure, of course. Of course, they're in league with all of these other historical families. Wait, I think the other thing, though, that I would raise about that is it's not even just dynastic wealth to me. It's American dynastic wealth, mm-hmm. right? Because it's it's established that they're a family and their their money is like very well fortified, but it also just seems like even then in the American context, like you're not talking about European wealth. Like in the American context, it, it seems like these characters feel like they're, they're still just one generation or even half a generation from absolute financial ruin despite all of their assets and despite all of this. And so it's the, it's the weird tension of how fortified they are as dynastic wealth, but also feeling totally precarious, especially because they're a family of, of fuck-ups and traitors. I want to use this as a, a, an opportunity to pivot into the next part of this podcast, which is, what is the most iconic or memorable moment from the episode? And this is one that reminded me of another example of American dynastic wealth and power. And I'm going to just read you this comment that uh, Connor Roy makes to the senator. He approaches him and says, socialism, huh? I got a problem with you and everything you stand for. I look at you and I see Weimar. I see hyperinflation. I mean, I look at your face and I see dead babies. You know what I mean? And it's at this moment when Connor thinks that he has bested the senator who very politely, um, you know, excuses himself from a conversation with somebody who feels like the living embodiment of an alt-right troll, uh, that Connor starts to resemble Donald Trump a little bit. And there is a, a... a lightly Trumpian buffoonery to I could be president and maybe I should be president because I know that the real problems in this country are usury and onanism, as he later tells Roman. (laughs) Onanism is really, really strong plank in his proto-presidential platform for some reason. That's great stuff. I mean, that's my favorite. That was my favorite part of this episode. I thought, I thought Connor was deployed. Interestingly, I don't, you weren't as big into Connor this season. Yeah. He's, I think, it's because he, you know, I think a thing about Succession is that they're unlikable characters for the most part, except for our dear, sweet cousin Greg, right? Yes. I think Connor is unique because he's the one character to me that even in a cast of unpleasant people, Connor feels off and he feels irritating and he feels like, he just feels like the awkward brother, yes. you know? He is clearly he like the first doesn't born. Belong. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah. The firstborn, and he doesn't have as real a relationship with his siblings. You know, they they almost tolerate him in a way. Right. And they know that there's something almost emotionally damaged about him that he can't quite access. Right. But I, I did, I, I thought that that's part of what made the I Should Be the President payoff so so profound for me. What was your most iconic or memorable moment from the episode? Uh, mine is when, I would say the long shots of Kendall walking up like walking through the castle and walking up the steps to deliver the the offer letter yes. to his dad. Yes. 
it's not just how it's shot, and it's I, I think it's because of the size of the the castle, and because of it's really like Jeremy Strong's gait when he's walking, and everything about his body language. Like I think a lot of the show is him being in scenes with characters where he sort of fight it's these very territorial scenes with his father or with the original guy in the first episode from the the company that they're trying to acquire, right? Like his body language is is supposed to be dripping with this insecurity, even though he's this sort of brash, like tough guy, negotiator wannabe. And I think the shot of him walking up to his father's room, making the long march to his father's room to deliver the offer letter is one of the few scenes where that body language is at play but in a scene where he's alone, where Kendall's alone because he's just walking by himself and it makes him look even more pathetic because you can, it's like a kid in, in a childhood home, like walking to confront their father over like their report card. That's very much <laughs> what that scene looks like. It's like he, he knows that he got a C minus in math and his dad is not going to be happy, but he has to take the report card to him himself because he has to get it signed. Like that's exactly what all of the body language in that otherwise quiet scene evoked for me. And I was like, yeah, this is who Kendall is. He is the kid who is afraid to take, you know, his report card to his dad, much less this hostile takeover bid. Do you think it's safe to say that Logan Roy, we can agree that Logan Roy won this episode, quote unquote? Yeah, if you're talking about practically, yeah. right? Like setting aside performances, I think that's a more complicated question. But uh, in terms of gamemanship, oh yeah, Logan Logan owned. And it's funny because in the beginning of the episode, if anything, it's one of the rare moments where Logan's like, oh no, I'm fucked. <laughs> he actually says out loud, like uh, the line is, I need a lot. I think Marsha, I think he's trying to co-conspire and he's just like, I need a lot of things that I don't have in order to shake off Kendall at this point. I'm just not equipped to withstand this any longer. Yeah, it's the second time we think he might be down and out. And of course, he emerges on top. Justin, I'm going to talk to a whole cast of Ringer staffers about who their MVPs were for this season, but you are certainly the best place to start. Who is your MVP for this season? I mean, the overall season, it's... uh... I think it's easy for me to say Greg, but that's not really an MVP call. That's just the who's the most adorable <laughs> character call. Uh, I would actually say Shiv. I, I think Shiv is, I'll put it like this. The episode formally ends with the focus on Logan and Kendall, right? And it's it's not just that ultimately Logan has rebuffed, he successfully undermined Kendall and rebuffed the the hostile bid for control of the company. But he sort of, by doing that, illustrated to Kendall the advantage of Waystar Royco being a family-owned company. Because for one, it being this family enterprise makes it so that, I don't know, when you drive a uh, waiter into a lake and kill him because you were looking for drugs, there's this whole apparatus that exists to protect you, right? And I think that's a lesson that... uh, Kendall comes to very dramatically, whereas I think Siobhan's half of the episode, the wedding, she actually comes to it a bit more authoritatively, right? Because even in her conversation with Tom about their very late conversation after they've been married at that point where she's like, by the way, you know, I don't know that I want an exclusive marriage. She's kind of speaking from this position of realizing in this very sharp way that like, right, I I'm the person from the good family here. 
right? Like my, my power, my authority, my, my ability to make a way in the world, regardless of how maybe ideologically or intellectually distant she feels from her father and his politics, it originates with her family name. Uh, and that's a thing that she lords over Tom, I think very gently, <laughs> and she lords over other people. And she comes into that power in a way that feels far more mature than how Kendall has to sort of retreat into that power. It's a great answer, Justin. Justin, thanks for chatting with me about this uh, season finale episode. I appreciate it. Yeah. Fun time. I'm now joined by the inimitable Amanda Dobbins. Amanda. Wow, thank you. Who is your MVP of season one of Succession? It's Tom. There's no question. You are the the queen of the Matthew McFadden hive. Yeah, so let's just get this out of the way. Performance of the year. Like, across <laughs> any category. Who is doing better acting, tell me, than Matthew McFadden as Tom? It is a deranged, amazing performance. And I keep thinking about Matthew McFadden was recently in an adaptation of Howard's End. And it aired earlier this year in the United States on Stars. And I keep thinking about the casting director who saw him in Howard's End, where he's playing this really buttoned up, kind of confused. He's the he's the character who can't adjust to the modern world and who's, who watched Howard's End and was like, that's my guy. That is the weird, goofy, ambitious, psychosexual terror that is Tom. Can I share with you my theory about this? Yes. So, of course, there is a connection between these two shows. Yes. Howard's End was adapted by Kenneth Lonergan. Mm -hmm. Kenneth Lonergan is married to the actress, J. Cameron Smith, who, of course, plays Jerry on Succession. Now, it's possible that these three people exist in a world of literary greatness and television adaptation. But if they don't, and there's the chance that Kenneth Lonergan said, this guy was really good on Howard's End. Maybe he'd be great for this project. I like that idea. I love that idea, too. It still requires just an incredible imagination to go from one to the other. And I do kind of wonder, I'm very curious how much of this performance, which is really, really, it's all over the place in the best way. He knows what he's doing, but one second he's kind of goofy and doting with Shiv and is this social, this kind of clueless schmuck social climber. And the next time he is just threatening cousin Greg with the force of the fury of it's really, really unsettling and hilarious. And also I don't think cousin Greg works as a character if he doesn't have Tom as a foil. And, you know, we at the ringer are very thankful for cousin Greg. So we just spoke to Miles Surrey about that. Yeah. So I'm curious how much of it was there at the beginning of his performance or whether it just gets wackier as they see what he can do over the course of the episodes. What's your your peak moment for Tom? Well, I wanna, I'm going to do an honorable mention, okay. which is when he and Cousin Greg are eating the birds with the napkins <laughs> over their heads. <laughs> and they're learning, quote, how to be rich people, which is, is perfectly written. That's just a very funny these characters are really well written, but my lord, is that hilarious. So I actually love the scene that comes right after that when they go to the club. Yeah. And Tom starts explaining <laughs> what it is to be rich when you do sit in a private space and pay people to bring you $1,400 bottles of vodka and be quote unquote happy. It's this performative yeah. extravagance that is ultimately illogical and hollow. Right. But Tom is very committed to the bit. And Cousin Greg is like half convinced. Right. There is that amazing point where he goes, so being rich is just sitting here watching them have fun. And Tom's like, yeah, pretty much, pretty much. (laughs) And he's kind of at peace with it. Yeah. 
But so, I mean, my other case for Tom as the MVP of this whole season is um, the closed system, which was the most incredible line of the year. And I, I, should I recreate it? Can we play it? Yeah, let's play it. If the car doesn't come soon, I'm just going to swim home, I think. Greg tells me you swallowed your own load. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was pretty wild. It's cool, though, because it's like I didn't cheat because all the sperm stayed in my own body, like a closed-loop system. Yeah, I mean, how do you top that? I want to ask you. Yes. I, I spoke to Allison about where Tom and Shiv end up because she chose Shiv. Yes. And I'm curious about your interpretation of that final seek those fun, that final couple of scenes between them, especially that one about, mm-hmm. you know, the last, you know, magnet on the fridge and what marriage really is right. and commitment. Right. So, and again, I think this is really great writing. Tom is an essential character in many ways because he's the illustration of what happens when you choose the dark side on this show. All of these people, I mean, Logan is who he is and we may never know his origin story, but all of the kids are born into this. They are burdened or blessed with this world and the parents that they have. Uh, God help them. And Tom is really throughout this season choosing to be a part of this. He really clearly wants it. He's climbing the corporate ladder. He keeps all of the secrets. He's marrying Shiv to be a part of this family and be in the Vanity Fair party pictures or whatever. And it's really interesting. That scene is kind of the only time that you see the cost of it. And you don't really see the human costs on this show very often. So for me, that was him choosing the dark side and also realizing what that means. Do you think that they have agreed to an open marriage when they consummate their on their wedding night? Not entirely. Okay. Because then he goes and kicks the election guy out, which is a great... Farewell, Nate. Yeah. Goodbye, Nate. Stop drinking my parents' wine. I mean, do I think that either of them is going to be faithful? It's a hard no, so... Okay. I'm sure we'll explore it further. Any other notes you want to make about the, the rise and power of Tom? Well, I'm concerned for him long term. Mm-hmm. Why? Because he gave away his power. He gave the secret to Shiv. That was the car that he was holding was the crew stuff. And he could have used it any which way, but he's already spent it now. It's and been revealed who really has that power exactly. too in the finale. And now he the gave cousin it to Greg. everyone else. So I don't know what he has anymore. Now he just has to be along for the ride that is Shiv, which again is what that scene is about. Something tells me that the creators of this show will not let Tom be weakened by everything that's happened to him because he's having such a great time playing that character. I sure hope not. He's fantastic. Thanks, Amanda. Thank you. Happy to be joined by The Ringer's Miles Surrey. Miles, thank you for coming on. Thank you. Miles, your MVP pick is particularly great, and it's because you just spoke to the man you're about to choose. Who did you pick for your MVP of this season? So I picked Cousin Greg, played by Nicholas Braun. And the thing about Cousin Greg is, you know, on a show with all these loathsome characters, he's just so, so lovable. He is. He's like, he is the most affectionately rendered character on the entire show. What was what were your impressions before we get into kind of the ups and downs of Cousin Greg's life? What were your impressions talking to Braun? Um, so it's interesting because one of the things he mentioned when we were talking about how, um, you know, he was first approached with the show when he read the script is he, it took him a few reads uh, to kind of understand the tone of it, which I think is is interesting because I think a lot of people had the same experience watching the show where, 
it took a few episodes to realize, oh, you know, this is actually just a really dark comedy. And, and, and it's funny because I feel like, especially with the pilot, it was almost, I, I, I looked at it in, in a very bleak lens, despite the fact that it was directed by Adam McKay. And I do think, you know, in the way that he experienced the scripts is a similar way to uh, how a lot of fans have watched the show where it does take a little while to sort of get acclimated to the tone. But once you're in it, it's just so, so funny. When you first saw Cousin Greg on the show and you first started watching it, did you think he would become such a centrifugal force to the story? I really didn't. In fact, because, um, yeah, the first time we see him is when he's in that mascot costume at the amusement park. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and he pukes into into the into the outfit. But, yeah, I just figured, you know, maybe he would have, uh, you know, a, a, like a tertiary role, like sort of the occasional like throw throw to him for a joke and him being sort of confused by what's happening around him. And obviously that's still a big part of his character where he's this sort of fish out of water guy who's, you know, he's got this whole family he doesn't really know about. And, you know, it takes him all to understand how they operate and how everyone has an agenda. And obviously by the end of the season, he's not exactly like whip smart about any of that, but it, it does seem like he's slowly learning how to interact with his family and, and sort of get things that he wants. Yeah, and we should talk about where he ends up as a character. I think one of the things that is interesting about him is he does have this role, even though he is bumbling and speaks in this way as if he's, it's almost as if he's reading Shakespeare for the first time. You know, it's, yeah. it's all verilies and goodlies and like he doesn't really know how to communicate with adults. But he does. he is a secret holder. You know, he does have this information about the cruise line. He has seen that there's something going on with Shiv and Nate. You know, what did you think about the place where he landed up on the show? Yeah, so I think it was great because I was actually talking about this um, with our Ringer colleague, Shocker, but he was wondering why Greg, you know, took copies of some of the documents. And as we find out in the finale, um, it's because he's using it as leverage. Um, and when he knows that Kendall's making a play to take over Waystar, he lets him know, hey, I've got this dirt and, you know, put me in a favorable position if, you know, if you want things to be good when you take control. And even though, obviously, by the end, Kendall's in no position to take over for his dad, the fact that Greg's smart enough to use that as leverage, I think, you know, if, if that happened to him at the very beginning of the season, he'd had no idea what to do with that information. And I think that was a really good moment that sort of demonstrates that he's slowly learning how to essentially play the game. I love how Kendall receives him too when Greg tries to kind of work him and he says, Greg the egg, you Machiavellian little fuck. I see <laughs> you, I like it. You know, there's something so like older cousin about that in a way that, that really resonated with me. The other thing, and you know, Justin Cherry and I talked about this a little bit, but he really is the um, the activating agent for what happens at the end of the show because he points out to Kendall that the waiter who is smoking weed is just around the corner there. And if not for that, maybe Kendall doesn't find himself in the mess that he's in at the end. Yeah, that's true. And he's the first person to approach Kendall in the morning. And obviously, he's got no idea what happened last night. But he's like, hey, did you know, did you hear about the waiter? And like, just sort of that sort of flips a switch in Kendall who's already trying to stay composed and just... Tell me, I, I know I have my pick, but what, what is your pick for the peak Cousin Greg moment of this season? Oh man, it's, it's so hard to choose, but obviously it had to be a scene with Tom. And for me, it's from um, the eighth episode, Prague. And I, I think it's just one of those moments that demonstrates the sort of subtlety that Greg sort of catching on to things is when Tom goes out to him after his little sexcapade and he tells him that uh, he swallowed his own load. <laughs> And Tom, you know, thinks it's this really cool thing, even though he doesn't remember the name of it. And Greg reacts by thinking, you know, it's very weird. And Tom suddenly 
you know, seems ashamed. And we, for the rest of the episode, we find out that the other Roy's have found out about this. And, you know, it's implied because Tom was so ashamed after Greg's reaction. Greg's telling them this and individually telling them that Tom swallowed his own load. And by having all the Roy's approach Tom about it, it's like he has to relive this humiliation. And I, I think it's indicative of what he's learned on the show, you know, because Tom considers him like this this threat, this outsider to the Roy clan. And Greg sort of responding in kind by humiliating Tom in front of the people that he admires and he wants to respect. And it's also just really funny to hear all the characters just go up to Tom and be like, oh, hey, so I heard you swallowed your own load tonight. <laughs> hey, Jay, heard you ate your own load, I believe is what yeah. uh, Colkin says to him. Uh, as a farewell, I'll share with you my favorite moment uh, of Cousin Greg, which is, Miles, thank you for chopping it up about and chopping it up with Cousin Greg. <laughs> Thanks, Miles. Thanks. This is great. I'm so glad hey, you picked him. Why don't you, you know, <laughs> just go get a slider, you know? <laughs> F- go find somebody and see if they'll let you stick your thumb up their ass. I hope you were recording that. I'm very excited to be joined by another Ringer staff writer, Micah Peters, host of On Shuffle and Other Things. Micah, what's up? What is going down? Micah, I was hoping you could share with me in describing your MVP what you said to me in my office the other day. (laughs) No, I was just saying that like of all of the people that seem like they have at least seen another person of color in their (laughs) lifetime on this show, I feel like Stewie is the only one. Like, but anyway- like Stewie is Stewie's my MVP because he's on the show like the exact right amount. Mm. I think that it's just kind of like he's funny, he's there, he leaves, he has his little, little snappy one-liner and like just f- firmly puts whoever whichever of the Roy's he's talking to at the time in there firmly in their place and then he just moves on, you know, like with his little velvet smoking slippers and t-shirts under blazers and whatnot. Did you, when you first saw Stewie, and I think we first saw him in that diner encounter with uh, with Kendall, did you have a sense that he would be actually this really important clown genius character of the show? I don't know if I thought he was going to be as important to the show as he's sort of become, but I mean, like, this was, it was very much when you first encounter Stewie, he's just like, I need to go to the bathroom in this coffee shop and... <laughs> you know, just blow rails off of the the sink because I'm a little hungover right now. <laughs> the show kind of hits hyperdrive when Stewie shows up. Yeah. There was, yeah. There was something missing and we didn't know it was missing. He's never lied to the people, not one time. <laughs> like it's like, I think it's, I was firmly in on Stewie in the beginning of the episode where they're backstage at, you know, like some rapper's concert or whatever. Not a big deal. It's delicate. What is it? You fucked the company? I haven't fucked the company. Uh-huh. Scientology? Look, we're friends. We go back. I can trust you, right? No. Sure, but on money stuff, I can trust you? No. Because um, we're calling a vote. Well, I'm going to just divulge this to you anyway. (laughs) Do you have a Stewie in your life? Do you have an old friend who you love and love to hang with, but don't trust, but want to trust? And so maybe you trust them even though you shouldn't? Hmm. Do I have any friends like that? Feel free to say their full names and dates of birth here <laughs> on this podcast. Uh, f- full names, dates of birth, blood type, uh, <laughs> home address. I have one friend like that, okay. that I have like, it's kind of a, a, a strangely adversarial relationship. 
Um, may he live in anonymity then. May he live in anonymity. <laughs> what was your, um, well, let me ask you this. How did you feel about the way that the season wrapped up for Stewie? Because hmm. we don't, he, there's, he doesn't have resolution to his story. And we know that essentially Logan leaves him with the idea that uh, Kendall's got to go to him and be like, this is fucked up. Don't, don't be a part of this deal, which is not what he wants. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, like it's kind of, he not so much, I don't, I don't think died the way he lives is the right way to, is the right way to say that. But I think that it was like the appropriate way for it to end just based upon the fact that he's, very like there's nothing going on really beneath anything he's saying it's just kind of like i have nothing but machinations evil machinations in my head i have i am going to follow the money wherever it goes and you know fuck everything else (laughs) so i mean like this is just the way that it works out i guess what's your favorite stewie moment of the season Mm, favorite stewie moment of the season it's a toss-up between like both of them were during the rhombus party Mm mm-hmm uh, like the way that he says, how would you like half a, half a billion dollars for your share of Waystar? And then he was just like, you gotta be, you gotta be kidding me. Kendall's like, you gotta be kidding me. He's just like straight liquid. Don't you worry about it. I can raise it. <laughs> like is, is, is honestly that I like that part, like the, the, the posture, the way that he says it, everything, like it's a perfect line delivery. And then also him just batting Roman shit around like that entire episode. Like, yeah, maybe you'll get to talk to Sandy eventually, whatever, whatever, whatever. I like the way that he positions in the beginning of that episode where he's just kind of like, hey, instead of doing that whack-ass thing you were going to do for Tom's bachelor party in Prague, why don't you come to this rhombus party? Like the whole time knowing that he's really trying to set up a specific scenario and He's just like, oh, and don't forget to bring Kendall. Like, <laughs> it's not even about you. <laughs> Master manipulator. Um, but also like the the scene in the hallway with with Roman where he's just like, Roman's just like, hey, I thought we I, you brought me here. I'm supposed to be talking to Sandy. Where's Sandy at? What's 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 really good? And Stewie goes, <laughs> Stewie goes, hey, why don't you with a toothpick in his mouth, hollering at some uh girl in like a, a, a cat outfit or whatever. It's just kind of like, um, hey, why don't you, you know, like, just be cool, damn. Like, why don't you go get a slider or <laughs> see if somebody will let you stick your thumb up their ass? Like, it's it's very, it's it's perfect. It's perfect. No line better captures his essence. Micah, thank you. Thank you. Really stoked to be joined by another Ringer staff writer, Katie Baker. Katie, hi. Hello. Katie, who the hell was your MVP of succession? Jerry. Yes. No question. Uh, the old fairy godmother. That's right. Um, Jerry, I just, you know, I think we've seen in the real world um, with some of the goings on in Washington that the the general councils are, you know, the, the real fulcrums of power and um, they know where the bodies are buried. In Jerry's case, she um, probably knows where her husband's body is buried as well <laughs> for her marital advice. Um, but yeah, she, you know, I, I, she just seems to be kind of the one that everyone is confiding in, but she's also, you know, she managed to get through the boardroom takeover scene without pissing off Logan. And, um, she just seems to be in a, in a good, although often thankless position. Yeah. I really thought at the beginning of the show that Frank was going to be the survivor type, you know, was going to be the alligator blood executive and pretty quickly by episode four or five, Jerry emerges. Yeah, Frank, I, I still don't know what I think of Frank. Um, 
But it does seem like Jerry is like the locus of you know, power. I mean, the fact that she is um, Shiv's godmom, she's obviously been in the Roy orbit for a really long time. Um, I'm curious to see how that backstory maybe eventually fleshes itself out. But, you know, I think in the finale, um, one of the funny moments was when Roman said to her, you know, as general, I'm just telling you this as general counsel so you can like protect me and stuff. And she says, you might be looking at manslaughter. <laughs> um, so, you know, she, th- she's got a little bit of a babysitter, uh, task that she has to handle in addition to, you know, actually getting stuff done. But, um, she would for sure be my pick. What's your favorite, what was your favorite Jerry moment this year? Um, I'd say there are two, I'd say the boardroom scene where she just managed to kind of slither out of, um, you know, in a, in a scene where he's, kicking people out of the room left and right. She managed to just kind of straddle the line there. And then I honestly just loved the scene with her and Shiv um, from the second to last episode of just these two women kind of circling each other. And, um, you know, like I said, her marital advice really couldn't be beat. Great. Thank you, Katie. Thank you. Joined now by Ringer staff writer, Allison Herman. Allison, You have been a little bit reluctant to get on the succession train, but over time, you've been compelled to like this show. Yes. I would still say I am like several cars behind (laughs) the rest of the Ringer staff. And of course, in this metaphor, uh, Chris Ryan is the conductor of the succession train. Undoubtedly. But I think it's been interesting to watch this show figure itself out over the course of the season, for sure. So you have a a good choice, one of my favorite choices for MVP. Who'd you pick? I picked... Siobhan, a.k.a. Shiv, which is a very fitting nickname. Truly. Why'd you pick Shiv? So, I don't like any member of the Roy family. Mm -hmm. I don't think you are supposed to like any member of the Roy family. But I respect Shiv. And I think Shiv is the only character of that family, with the possible exceptions of, like, Logan and Marsha, who has earned our respect. What makes you say that? So, first of all, she has a job and she's good at the job and she does things that are that are of value to people who are not her parents, which, you know, is a low bar to clear in the rest of the world. But in the Roy family, that puts her just miles above. Like, Roy and Connor are just irredeemable fuck-ups who will never acquire any skills. Kendall, I think it's implied that he actually, he clearly has some business acumen, but the only time we've ever seen him operate outside of the Roy sphere, he miserably failed to, as Jason Concepcion pointed out in his piece, like, give money away. Yes. Shiv is really talented at her chosen profession of being a political strategist. Uh, She's not necessarily the most idealistic, but... Um, That's probably what makes her good at that job, candidly. It, exactly. Although maybe makes her an awkward fit for her current boss, True. Uh, Bernie. Or the Bernie Sanders. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I think the fact that, you know, she's proven to be good at something, I think makes her more of a well-rounded person. I also think her choice of career introduces one of the more interesting dynamics with Logan outside of the whole Kendall Oedipal struggle. Like, Shiv lashing out against her arch-conservative Rupert Murdochian father by working for, like, Schmerny Schmanders or whatever <laughs> they're going to call him is, you know, an impressive, interesting— And one of my gripes with the season was that they didn't really, like, hit on that until later. Like, that's a fascinating character beat. It's her, you know, giving the middle finger her to, to her family but not quite renouncing them, which I think is also a really interesting thing about her. I was actually just thinking— the. TV character she most resembles in my mind is 
the crown's Princess Margaret. Okay, I'm not a crown watcher, so why is that? So Princess Margaret's whole deal on the crown is that she whines a lot about the burdens of being a royal and being associated with a family, and she famously— in real life as well as the show, had to uh, break up with a fiancé who was divorced. But the caveat is she technically could have married the guy if she'd simply renounced her title and left the family. And I think Shiv is in a similar position where she dislikes her family and resents a lot of what comes with them, but she can't fully bring herself to introduce the break. And so she does really, you know, seemingly self-contradictory things like marry someone who works for her father while working for her father's political enemy. Yes. And I mean, how do you feel about the fact that at the end of the finale, we see that, you know, she has fundamentally carried the water of her father once more. She's also carrying Gus's water. But, you know, this, this detente that they arrive at underlines the fact that there is no idealism and that she is purely about success and she is not about ideas. Yeah, and they do triple underline that many times. The whole like, oh, inequality. Yes, <laughs> is her, a great. Her, is a great her little moment. encounter with Nate there is also very notable. You know, them yeah. sniping at each other. I also find that her failings tend to be a little more relatable, understandable. I'm not sure what the term is, but just the the whole self destructive impulse to like cheat on your fiance with someone who I also think um, the chemistry between Sarah Snook and I don't know the actor who plays Nate, but they make that indiscretion incredibly convincing. And it seems at least a little more, infidelity seems a little more universal than like trying to climb the corporate ladder of a multi-billion dollar company owned by your father. You're you know? right. There is something very real about that encounter. And and every scene that features Tom is like, un, is unreal because that character is so preposterous and performative and funny and fun to watch. But Nate and Shiv, they have something forbidden going on, and it feels that way. Oh, absolutely. And speaking of Tom, I, with all due respect to our colleague Amanda Dobbins, I did not pick him. But I do think Shiv really benefits from being in scenes with them. I think one of the things that surprised me a lot about the final couple episodes of the show is that the show more or less positions Kendall, I think, as the emotional center. But once Tom kind of becomes wise to what's going on with Shiv and Nate— and they start having these, like, elliptical, not really conversations, but also conversations about that. It gets really—I felt something, which yes. I have not—my big thing with Succession is I understand what it's doing, and I find it really funny. But in order to invest for the long haul in a TV show, I need something to kind of grab onto, either emotionally or thematically or conceptually. And I think Shiv is really key to introducing something like that into the Succession world. So just to wrap up, let me ask you, that final encounter between— Tom and Shiv, where they are essentially emotionally dancing around the idea of commitment after they've been married, notably. And they decide to resolve it by having sex. Do you think that that was, and did you think Shiv wins that encounter or Tom wins that encounter? And what have they ultimately agreed to here? I think no one really wins, <laughs> as in succession as a whole. But I think Shiv gets a little bit more of a concession. I mean, the fact that he did not immediately walk out and was like, I need to annul this when she was like, BT dubs on our wedding night. Can we have an open relationship? Or like, I don't know if I'm cut out for a monogamous marriage. <laughs> you know, the fact that he did not immediately be like, okay, I'm done. This was a mistake kind of means that she got a, a pretty major concession. Mm -hmm. And the fact that he was still ultimately willing to have sex with her after that, I thought was pretty notable. So... 
I think it'll be interesting. It's a little too predictable to be like, oh, the marriage will fall apart. Like, too many people have made jokes about that in the presence of those characters, I think, for it to immediately come to pass. But I don't think either of them are in the best emotional place going forward. That's a a good note to end on, Allison. Thank you. Thank you. What an absolute honor to be joined by the mother of dragons, Mal Rubin. Mal! Logan! Dad! Oh, oh God. (laughs) Mallory, I've been asking Ringer staffers about their MVP. Mm -hmm. I want to know who your MVP of succession was. All right, I want to be really honest, both because I value you and the trust that we share, and because transparency with the listeners is an imperative. I wanted to pick Tom, but Amanda replied quicker (laughs) on the email. It's for the best. It's for the best. Your choice is also worthy. Who is your choice? My choice is Roman Roy. (laughs) Why Roman? Why not Roman? I mean, you can make the case compellingly for everybody on the show because they are all endlessly fascinating and compelling, mostly in horrifying ways. Mm -hmm. And first of all, I just think that Kieran Culkin's performance is... And I think this word is overused, but I mean it sincerely, transcendent, Mm -hmm. (laughs) as are so many of the performances on the show. In that he's like transcending the boundaries of decency at all times? Certainly that, but also just what you think is possible and what could come out of a person's mouth or happen on a person's face at any given moment in time. I think that that character maybe is the best encapsulation, actually, of the mission of the show. So, you know, on the one hand, love Tom, love Cousin Greg, because of the laughter, the humor, the debauchery. And then you have the far end of the extreme where you're taking people like Kendall and Shiv a little more seriously. Roman exists perfectly in the middle of the Venn diagram of everything that I find compelling about the show, You sort of have to hate him, and you find a lot of his behavior and his positions and his choices actively repellent, and yet you're totally gripped by him at almost all times, and you're rooting for him even though you don't really know if you should be. And that's part of why I think the character is such a success. Do you think that he is the classic, youngest, incompetent archetype? Glad you asked. Yes. First of all, we should talk about his name for a minute. Okay. So, Roman, Romulus, Remus and Romulus, twin brothers. I mean, he and Kendall are not twins, but what does Romulus do to Remus? You tell me. You are the the, the, the master of, of fantasy literature. He kills him and founds Rome. <laughs> also, they're kind of raised by wolves. So this all fits quite well. And shouts to Remus Lupin, one of my all-time favorite Harry Potter characters. Wow. Is that true? Raised by wolves, those two? They're associated with wolf-like imagery. Interesting. Yeah. And so do you think that we're leading to like season six of Succession in which Roman kills Kendall? I think he kind of did in a way already by not ultimately putting his hand up to vote with him. Very insightful. Right? Yeah. And one of the things that Romulus does is builds the wall around the city. And I think that's what Roman is doing in these final episodes where he's sort of, you know, he's initially presented to us as kind of a human punchline. He's a joke, but he's also in on the joke. And now he's at this moment where he is actively trying to combat 
a perception that he in part fueled, which is fascinating. And he wants so desperately to be taken seriously. And so he is building these walls around his own effort to become like a corporate, a part of a meaningful part of a corporate apparatus to earn his father's trust now that he sided with him. That's what makes the satellite launch (laughs) just (laughs) so perfectly agonizing because, you know, every moment where Kendall basically says, you're a fucking idiot if you think this matters, is now like extra painfully poetic because it literally blows up. It literally blows up. And then Roman, after watching this alone in a bathroom, like a place of filth and private shame, (laughs) his face is twitching. And then he just washes his hands of it. (laughs) Literally washes his hands. Walks away. Your ability to read into the metaphor of the show is highly impressive. I love, I love this show. What's your, what is your peak Roman moment? What was your favorite Roman moment of the season? Boy, tough to choose between using the ringing iPhone as a vibrator and masturbating against the window. Yeah, the window. I wanted to talk to you about the window <laughs> in, an, in an HR conscious way. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. What do you make of that scene? What do you think that, what do you, that happened fairly early in the series. Right. What do you think that told us about who that character was? So I think the reason it's such an effective moment is because it's almost, well, it's not that it's impossible to say, but it's that it's, you can argue any case you want. Like, it's almost like a baseball argument. You can find the stat you need to make the case you want. So I think you could look at that and say, that's basically like a man, literally, not basically, literally a man spreading his seed over his new domain, marking his territory in the most feral way possible, He could have actually pissed on it, but they had to save that plot point for his father a couple episodes later, right? Take me seriously. This is mine now. But I think you could just as easily go to the exact opposite extreme, the other end of the spectrum, and say he's so unsure and he has so little comfort, not only in his new element in that case, but in his own skin, that he basically, absent the confidence or the clarity of how to proceed, has to just descend into the most base instinct He's an animal. that he has. Yeah. yeah. He, he just has and to I, ejaculate I, on things to mark his territory. I think either of those interpretations works equally well, and probably 20 others also, and that's why he's a great character. It's a wonderful place to end, Mallory. This has been deeply insightful. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for bringing it in, as always. Shouts to Roman. I'm delighted to be joined by the pod uncle, Chris Ryan, co-host of The Watch, editorial director of The Ringer, the OG succession repper. Yeah. You were the first person Early here adopter. that said, this is the, this, this show matters. This is going to be a thing. And, and some of us doubted you. Yeah. And we were wrong. And you're here now to tell us who the most important person on this show was. Who's the MVP of succession season one? MVP of the show is Kendall because he makes this show unique. I think it's very hard to play dumb and it's very hard to play high. And Jeremy Strong does both. And I am fascinated by watching actors play up against the limits of a character's intelligence and finding interesting ways to express a person 
who is dealing with not being able to articulate themselves. It must be a very difficult thing for an actor to do because everything is articulation for an actor. Everything is understanding the economy of gesture or the economy of emotion and how am I going to project this? But when you're playing somebody who is constantly foisted into these situations that call for him to rise to the occasion and always fails and fails in a way in which it's all right there for him. All he has to do is like, this is your chance to just destroy Logan. He's in a coma. He's had a stroke. He can't talk. He's pissing himself. He's pouring coffee all over himself and he can't pull it off. And then I think that the entire engine of the show is the way in which as Logan gets stronger, Kendall gets weaker. Truly. You know, and Kendall's strength comes from Logan's weakness. It's, it's, this, it's this push and pull that I think powers the entire show. I think Strong's performance is beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. And I think it's it's really the remarkable uh, achievement of this show. I think that there's some things in it we've seen before. I think there's some things in it we'll see again. Rich families are not unique to television, but I've never seen someone like Kendall. Yeah, we first saw Jeremy Strong, I think safe to say, in The Big Short, which was Adam McKay's film, obviously, and he's one of the producers of this show. I remember when we saw it, he jumped off the screen for you too. You were yeah. like, who's that guy? That guy's incredible. Was his name Vinny in the show? It's Vinny, and he is the guy in the room who's not joking. Right. Uh, and it's, he's the guy that, um, I think he's the guy that Ryan Gosling's character, Jarrett, says, that's a nice shirt. Do they make it for men <laughs> to him? <laughs> he's one of the guys who goes to Florida, I think, or somewhere to check out uh, abandoned homes in some development and to do some research on the ground about the the coming housing crisis. He's got uh, an intensity that is uncommon from stuff like this because what you expect is a certain um, glibness, I think, in these shows. Uh, and it, it was, it was, I think in The Big Short, too, there was a certain glibness to Ryan Gosling's character, to Rafe Spall's character, to Hamish Linklater's character. But Jeremy Strong brings a, almost like 130% commitment to he's like- He's ice. Yeah. yeah. He's Pacino. Yeah. 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 He reminds me a little bit more of, and this is kind of a grand gesture, but since we've been talking so much about TV in the last couple of weeks on the site, it's a little closer to Walter White or to Tony Soprano. You know, it's like he can laugh and he has some some looseness, but for the most part, he is locked in on the mission. And mm-hmm. the, the flip side is Walter White and Tony Soprano often succeeded. And as you say, he never wins. So how did you feel at the end of the finale where- I mean, he really, that power dynamic that you're talking about, just, you know, the the life bar for Logan goes way up and it goes way, way down for Kendall. I thought everything about that sequence from his escape from the car, which I thought when it first happened, I was like, there was a little voice in the back of my head that said, this is almost too perfect. You know, like this is almost like, this is the kind of thing that would come up in a writer's room. It's not the kind of thing that I actually think would happen, you know? Well, Justin Charity and I did discuss that it literally it, is Chappaquiddick. It is Chappaquiddick, of course, yeah. But I, I, I mean more in the sense that it was all going to be in the execution of that. I think it's crucial that he tries a couple of times to find that guy and can't. And then his little Dustin Hoffman run back, he's just like, I'm just going to run. I'm running. And it's like this almost like, a coping mechanism in the same way that drugs are. Like he's just going to run away. And uh, the performance at the end, the performance of the brunch, uh, the post-wedding brunch, and even down to the way they've dressed him like a little boy, like a little boy in his sweater, you know, and um, they almost, I think, purposely shoot him in long and wide angles and in, 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 in from a distance to show his uh, stature. Greg is like towering over him. 
And you imagine if you had that weight on you, you would be small. You know what I mean? If you knew that this was going to come, that you would be so small. And I mean, I'm, it, it's cheap, I guess, but that single tear that comes out as like Logan's like, this is how your life's going to go now. Like I've got you is just so heartbreaking. It's completely crushing. I, I was so oddly moved by this show that I mostly thought of as like um, pain relief at the end of a long week. When I watch it, I was just gave me pure joy and I thought it was entertaining. The ideas are very serious and they're thoughtful and it's an exciting show. But this was pure tragedy. Mm-hmm. It was pure. It was literally Shakespearean tragedy. Where do you think Kendall goes now? Uh, I guess to the desert to dry out. I think that that's a crucial question for the rest of the show in general. Do you just repeat the same tricks or do you go somewhere else with it? You know, is Shiv going to be the White House chief of staff next season? Or is she just going to be kind of banging around looking for her angle? Do you think it lives and dies by that Kendall-Logan dynamic that you described? I think it does. I think it needs a heart. And I think for even, even though it wasn't always the one we're used to, I think Kendall was in a weird way the heart of the show. I think that he and his his transparency and emotion was what made this show sort of, uh, it gave it a balance in those middle episodes where I think it was very, very funny. And everybody was like, we've really got something here every week. I'm quoting 19 lines from the show, but his trajectory. And I thought that the addiction narrative with him was fascinating because typically um, I think we are shown addicts and it's either this destructive thing in their life or it's this thing that unlocks them, but they know it's destructive. It's like the basketball diaries thing or whatever. And for Kendall, it was clearly just the way he preferred to be. When he does meth, he's not like, hey man, I'm going to read you like an entire poem that I wrote or anything. It's just like, now I'm fine. He's confident and at ease. Yes. Yeah. And that's what's sort of driving him uh, on that wedding night. That's what's pushing him so far. And like, even the little details of that, like Stewie initially enabling him and then being kind of like turned off by his need for it was like, it's actually quite pitch perfect for those, uh, for, for those moments. And I, I just thought that his entire narrative with that was fascinating. I just, it'll be really interesting to see where this show goes. Jesse Armstrong, uh, came on the watch. It'll be up on Monday. And he talked a little bit about how when he pitched the show to HBO, he pitched it as every episode is a very special episode. Every episode is a gathering of the tribe and like they're all together and we're going to put them in these compressed situations and it's going to create so much tension and drama because we just skip all the stuff in between Thanksgiving and the wedding. Love that. Yeah, that's genius. It's a genius idea, but how sustainable is that? Do you want to pair these people off? Is is Kendall going to turn into some new age spiritualist coming back from the desert? Like, I don't don't know. Doesn't this feel like the perfect three season show? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I really feel like there is enough on the bone right now that they could stretch it out across 30 hours, but then beyond that, it would feel overdone. Yeah. I, I think that it's, it would be sad if this was in season six and they were just still just grilling each other yeah, and hoping Logan each dies. Other. Yeah, yeah. And, and Logan's still clicking along B- before we wrap. What's your, what was your favorite Kendall moment from this season? I have a couple. Okay. Um, I think his appreciation for Wolf art, that, <laughs> that scene where he is like experiment successful. I think I, I have decided to become a meth head. Uh, was was like the first time I thought I saw him feel comfortable. Uh, the sneaker scene with the dust girls and just like, I'll throw these out the window right now, like in his intensity. But in a lot of ways, I think that um, the first time we see Kendall is is actually quite exemplary, which is him listening to the rap music and getting fired up in the backseat and rapping along, you know, and just being like, um, this is me. Because he's pretending to be somebody. He's constantly pretending to be somebody. Chris, you can only be yourself. Thank you for doing this. Yeah. 
Thanks again to nearly a dozen Ringer staffers for joining me on this episode of The Recapables. And stay tuned to this feed. We are strategizing right now what shows will come next on The Recapables, but there will be some soon, so keep an eye out. <laughs>